I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Behind what amounts to an informal news blackout, MIT is in a moral dither over AI. Artificial intelligence, a giant hot potato in higher education. So we peek in this hour into MIT science, philosophy, governance. Ironies abound. MIT is famous as a real brain beehive in a high IQ zip code next to Harvard, but it's in a swivel about advanced computing that can whip human thinking in test after test. To sense the power stakes and the moral questions, all you had to see really was the parade of dubious characters in and around the dedication last week of a new billion dollar MIT College of Computing. Henry Kissinger, the 93-year-old Vietnam war lord on stage with Tom Friedman, the New York Times pitchman for the Iraq war, the finance mogul Stephen Schwartzman, who will endow the new school and put his name on it, and lurking at MIT in the recent past, Saudi Prince Mohammed bin Salman, a Schwartzman business partner and by now the notorious MBS for the gruesome murder of a thorn in his side, the writer Jamal Khashoggi. Suddenly, students are getting an introduction to politics, and the Institute is putting a shiny face on its version of things. Now more than ever, we need to prepare students to understand the ethics and societal implications of these technologies and these advancements, and that's the job that universities must do. My intent with this gift is to make the world a better place, make the United States as strong a country as it can be, and bring prosperity and a good life to as many people as we can. And we're in a unique time in history where we actually can do those things, where the capability is there. And it gives me real joy uh, to be able to be part of that process. That was the financier Stephen Schwartzman and MIT's president, Raphael Reif. Three MIT students who had taken part in a campus protest spoke with me this week about radical awakenings. First, Alonzo, a math major from Texas, then Gabrielle in computer science from Newark, New Jersey, and Elena, a graduate student in anthropology from Flint, Michigan. There is this sense of being ripped away from this you know, almost paradise in the sky that I, I was in you know, up in my head when I realized that every aspect of my existence, the clothes I wear, the food I eat, is all like fundamentally enmeshed in a rotten, rotten political economy. I can't do math right now. I, I look at a problem set and I just can't think about it because my mind is elsewhere. We need to break out of our complicity, complicity that rests on apathy and nihilism. Studying both computer science and anthropology at MIT really forces you to realize how deeply you are in the belly of the beast. We are at the forefront of creating powerful technologies that can and are used to enact violence on people, communities around the world. And it takes a long time to wake up to this sort of thing when you have been taught since a kid, since before coming to MIT, that if you're good at math, if you're good at science, you should pursue engineering. You should, at least for me, be a model of how black women can succeed in computer science. 
And then you get here and you are disillusioned. We're faced with a huge lack of information about what are MIT's ties, whether to industries that support incarceration, to places like Saudi Arabia. Our research, our existence at MIT is tied directly to politics, to economics, and any social, political, ethical challenge we have in the world today, all technology is political. AI is not going to fix anything because AI will be reproducing inequality, violence, destruction, precarity. So we are taking that challenge, AI can't fix this, as a call to action. That's one slice of student feeling. Susan Silby is one of three MIT professors in our studio this hour. She's an anthropologist and chairman of the MIT faculty. Susan Silby, welcome. What, what does the faculty say? And I just <laughs> introduced by saying I've heard uncertainty, anxiety, anticipation, perhaps even opportunity. What does the chairman say? All of those. All of those. There's anxiety, there's uncertainty, there is opportunity, there is hope. There is a recognition. I think it is widespread, not simply at MIT, but across the nation and maybe even globally, that our technology has gotten beyond our ability to manage and control it, that errors were made. Fundamental Mm. errors were made in creating the world in which we now all live, perhaps not as comfortably as we thought we were going to. Mm. The errors were really quite fundamental sociological and anthropological errors. Moral, philosophical, humanistic? Well, they end up on the basis of making social science errors that, one, a tool that was made for high-energy physicists to share data with each other on a military platform was given to the world. The Mm. error is ignoring context. Context matters. That's what makes it either an opportunity or uncertainty or a horror. The second Mm. error they made is they looked at themselves and said, oh, this is so good for me. Let everybody have it. And they assumed that They looked in a mirror that everybody's just like me. They ignored human variation. And the third error they made is they talked to themselves. Groupthink, something you'll remember Graham Allison wrote so beautifully about in analyzing the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm. So ignore context, ignore human variation, talk only to people like yourselves, and we get the world we're in now that these students are so unhappy about. Footnote about the students. They're immensely impressive at one level, but of context, they have almost none. Exactly. In terms of history, psychology, moral philosophy, the the big... Picture. Yeah. That's right. And that's what this college of computing, we hope, is going to repair. It is an opportunity to put the humanities and the social sciences right in the heart of the beast, as you said and as the students said. Yeah. That's what we want this to be. We want every student at MIT to come out with a surer and more closely connected understanding 
of how their technologies are embedded with assumptions about human beings and how they affect them. Let's talk about the incredibly huge scope of that kind of rethinking. Not incidentally, Tim Berners-Lee, who invented the web, now at MIT. And, and now unhappy about what happened and making a new everybody's unhappy one. about the social... But he's making a new technology to decentralize the web because he knows that it went wrong. And he knows some of the mistakes. And here we have in the incredible extensions of computing power. They're way beyond automation. Artificial intelligence that can beat test players, this sort of thing that thinks for itself. Um, we're talking about a technology that its best friends say is apocalyptic. Yeah. How but do you their turn best on friends that? are part of the problem. They're the ones... <laughs> Speak about them. That they're the ones who do not think about the nature of the decisions they're making. Let's take one of the most popular ones those often touted autonomous cars. So what are people worried about? First, they're worried whether the car will hit the trolley car or the lady with the baby, an old philosophical problem yes. my colleague here can tell us about. And now they think they have improved the conversation by not worrying about that, but worrying about who will have liability after the accident. Both questions wrong. The question is, why are we even making autonomous cars when hmm. we do not have decent public transportation and we do not have high-speed trains like other advanced nations? They're asking the wrong questions, and we have to give them the context in order to ask the right kinds of questions. And those are questions of political economy, which are missing from the discussion of AI except by those who are worried about what is human life going to be like? How are people going to occupy their time? And I hope it's by not playing online games. You're talking about re-engineering maybe the most famous engineering school in the world. Well, we, we know the MIT type. It's a venerable engineer. They build bridges. They have pocket protectors. Well, that's where I would rules. like to suggest you are engaging in the same problem of generalizing from a subset and not seeing the entire variation. MIT okay. probably has one of the best music departments in the, in, in the nation. We have some of the most accomplished composers and I know, musicians. I, I know them well. I love That's them right. dearly. So we're not just engineers. We also have extraordinary novelists. And if I might say, my colleagues in anthropology are among the most talented and smartest anthropologists around, and my sociology colleagues in Sloan. Most of the people don't pay attention to us. You have writers. You have yes. philosophers. You have the most famous linguist of all time. That's right. Uh, eternally dissenting. Probably the most famous MIT faculty member of all time across the globe, a member of the School of Humanities, Arts, and okay. Social Sciences. Noam Chomsky. Yes. But let me push back a little bit. I don't think you've got as many of those great writers and free thinkers as you did 20, 30, 40 years ago. I think of giants like Walter Dean Burnham, one of the enormous political scientists, political scientists educated me. Uh, I'm thinking of lots of others. I think of the composer John Harbison for sure. He's still there. But I, I, I terribly miss the marvelous nuclear physicist Phil Morrison, and he had a whole circle of the Manhattan 
project around okay. him, who never let people forget the mistakes exactly. that those experts exactly. had made. Okay. Exactly. Um, we're just beginning to talk about the AI fight around in and all about MIT. Uh, lots of opinions and news uh, that you haven't read, incidentally, in the New York Times. We'll be back. This is Open Source. That phrase, artificial intelligence, has had its ups and downs over 60 years. More slogan than science, maybe. Yarden Katz is an MIT PhD with a book in progress on the history of that term. We asked him for the short form and his own spin on AI. So the term was coined by the American logician John McCarthy. It was a term for a meeting that was convened in Dartmouth uh, in 1956. Uh, Participants in the meeting obviously never agreed about what AI has meant, but the general promise was that it'll be about making machines that are as intelligent as people. And the term intelligence was very loaded uh, then as it is today. Some of the early AI pioneers were saying as early as the 60s that they've built machines that, quote, act and reason and think uh, like people. So they've actually made that announcement. Uh, that hasn't turned out to to be true. And if you look at um, the academic AI field, people now make fun of that uh, promise and that declaration that we've actually already achieved it. If you fast forward to um, the 1980s, uh, by then there was a period where people were less excited about the term, and that's sometimes referred to as the AI winter. AI has then had another boom in the 90s where the term became really popular with the rise of, of certain neural network models, which are very fashionable again today. And so I think if you look at AI's uh, sort of rises and, and, and falls, the biggest one is in the 2010s, where people not just in academia, but also all over the media and in the policy world, really started talking about AI incessantly. So in 2013, we had the revelations from Edward Snowden about this massive dragnet surveillance that many activists suspected existed, but it was a kind of awakening. And this term big data became a tainted phrase because now big data was linked with the notion of Big Brother with companies that are surveilling us. This kind of bringing back the term AI was very helpful in now providing a different narrative. We have these computers that are very smart. It was framed in terms of cognition. These computers might be as smart as us, maybe smarter in all these different domains. Uh, It coincided with certain developments of computational models that are very lucrative for companies like Google who are trying to do things like predict where you'll click. I don't think they're approaching human thought, but once you put the AI label on them, it's very evocative. And so now you've created a discourse that's about human cognition, superhuman computers, and not really about surveillance or terms that are fashionable now like surveillance capitalism. I think that what really helped this preoccupation with AI was the fact that then these companies like Google and Microsoft went and funded many academics to work on AI, and they've even hired them. So they've hired academics who previously worked on things like statistical data analysis or big data, academics who didn't necessarily use the term AI in the early 2000s, let's say, but were leaders in big data. And these companies hired them and made them heads of AI labs. 
the media then started reporting on the great achievements, so-called achievements of a lot of these systems. They're playing Go better than us. They're doing this or that other thing better than us. And so a kind of discourse has been created where the unstated premise is just that AI is a coherent, powerful force, and it has arrived because of technical developments in computing. Yadin, when people hear those initials, AI, what should they think? I think it's important to not think of it as a coherent and transformative force that is simply the result of faster computers and bigger data sets, but rather to see it as a kind of nebulous concept or label that can be layered on top of existing activities. So the label now creates space and room and infrastructure for these experts who are privileged to come and say how we should structure society. If AI is going to affect the economy and the law and health, then now we have to yield to the AI experts. So I think it's important to question that concept, to question its timing, and to question the policy prescriptions that seem to follow from this so-called technical event that has just happened, uh, which uh, is normally attributed to bigger uh, data sets and faster computers. But it's not that. It's a cultural phenomenon, and it's a, a label that serves political agendas. Yardin Katz is a postdoc fellow in systems biology at the Harvard Medical School. Whose university is it? was the theme of a teach-in he convened at the Cambridge Public Library this month. Sally Haslanger is the Ford Professor of Philosophy at MIT, and she's an activist across a broad front of contemporary matters, metaphysics to language, social issues including gender, race, and the family. Sally Haslanger, welcome. You've written bitingly about this college of computing that one of the obvious but unmentionable issues is the, is the play of plutocracy on campus, meaning Stephen Schwartzman, I suppose, but what else? Thank you for having me. So I, I should start by saying I, I believe in the mission of MIT and I believe in the power of technology. But as Susan was suggesting, context, who makes it, who benefits from it, who is involved in, in um, paying for it matters hugely. And in a plutocracy, a plutocracy is a governance by the wealthy, and we know from our current uh, political situation that government uh, by the wealthy is not adequately democratic. It doesn't serve the interests, the common good. Um, in, the, in the university, um, there isn't a democracy. It's not intended to be a democracy. But I think that there are risks that come from having big money control research agendas. There is risks that come from, from big money being able to uh, uh, valorize certain subject matters at the expense of others. And what, Any in particular you're thinking about? Well, I think, I mean, the humanities are not going to get big money. And I think that with money comes power. And in many institutions, the humanities are sidelined and, and devalued because um, the money goes because uh, engineers make very profitable widgets and engineers are very uh, useful in the contemporary context there are a lot of people who want to give to them okay but what i want to but i want to emphasize is that um, academic life has been restructured dramatically in the last several decades because um, state uh, funding has been eliminated 
And so there's a practical need to find private funding, and I acknowledge that practical need. Uh, but I'm a philosopher, and I want to step back and look at the structure, the broader structure that is shaping um, research, mm. that is shaping what we're doing. And when you see that it's big money that is stepping in instead of having nonprofit or government-funded research, then they get to have an influence over what gets done and who does it and how mm. it gets done. And and so, for example, when MIT says we're going to have um, uh, ethics be a fundamental part of the new center. And I, I believe that, and I want to be part of that. I'm, I'm reaching for my gun when they say but, ethics. but No, but, but then they invite Henry Kissinger Thank to you. come and, and open it where he was invited to give a talk on the ethics of AI. This is insulting. It is insulting to people who spend their lives. Kids get it, who don't even remember the Vietnam War. Right. But this is insulting, and it's insulting when when you're worried that someone who's given all this money has the power to influence whether... uh, an ethicist or a social political philosopher is going to speak about AI or Henry Kissinger. And this it's very upsetting to people. Not to mention Prince Salman, who made a sort of a stealth visit to MIT, warmly embraced most of a year ago. Right. Sally, I mean, Susan, were you wanting to break in? No. Uh, let, me, let me go to another point that you've written about, Sally. Um, sponsored research. Uh, as if to say... MIT can almost be hired to solve people's problems, quite apart from the research and teaching mission. Noam Chomsky used to say that back in the 70s, Kissinger time, Nixon time, when we liked the idea of Iraq having nuclear weapons, the Shah of Iran virtually outsourced the nuclear development for Iraq, for Iran to MIT. What do we mean by sponsored research? What does it do to the institution? Well, I, I believe that there is some sponsored research that is just necessary because there is so little other sources of funding. And again, this is not an MIT problem. It is a problem across the academy. It is a systematic and structural problem with the way higher education works in this country. And so MIT is getting sponsored research. But then there are big questions about what are the kinds of terms on which people Mm -hmm. enter into that sponsored research. Now, there is, of course, the issue of academic freedom, and I believe in academic freedom. And there's often said, well, the researchers ought to be able to do, you know, get money from all kinds of people and do the research that they're being asked to do. But the worry is that this takes the, the, the real academic integrity away from the researchers because they are, in a sense, beholden to the big money to work on particular topics, particular subject matter. Now, I think that there are many different ways that this happens, and some of the ways are perfectly legitimate and some less legitimate. Moreover, I do want to emphasize I'm not saying that the particular researchers lack integrity. What I'm saying is that the system is deeply problematic because when we're talking about um, knowledge production for the common good, but we're being asked to not let the researchers decide what is going to be the most important and valuable research, and we're not looking at the common good of the people, the citizens, etc., but we're looking at the big money that is giving us funding, that's a problem. I, I take your point. I just want to say I'm thinking in almost any country in the world except ours, it would sound 
very, very strange, this incredibly rich country to say, we have to, you know, do some dirty work at night or something to sustain our intellectual mission. I mean, can you imagine what this would sound like in um, Bulgaria or Chad or, uh, you know, Mexico, even France? What's wrong with that country that it can't do its own teaching and thinking? We don't believe in the public. The United States does not have a reverence for the common, for that which we share. This is a country of individualists who celebrate the individual to the degree that they cannot recognize the ways in which we are bound together and interdependent. And that makes is really the foundational difference of the United States and our European neighbors or Forbears. But is there something I would like in to say that I don't believe that? I don't either. I don't believe <laughs> Jonathan that. If you King, watch right? those I mean, nurses that hung together to get the proposition one last year, a hundred thousand school teachers fighting for public education in the United States. My colleagues in biomedical research are organized nationally, hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, all of them saying that collectively the only we have to work together to, you know, alleviate disease. I was gonna say, and, I mean I, Susan, you make it sound as if there's something in the water on this continent. No, I'm sorry. Just look at our elections. Now, they may be tainted and corrupted, but the majority of American voters, as much as I might vote with the positions that Jonathan just said, they don't vote for this. The minute you say, now, we may be at a watershed and a moment of transition, but socialism is the dirtiest word until... What, six months ago no. in the United States? Until the New Hampshire primary when all sorts of kids and New Hampshire people I'm not saying this gave, nobody gave, who gave the primary that. to Bernie Sanders. Okay. Uh, but um, in the end, that isn't what I, I, prevailed. Uh, I, I, I want to stick with this, this funny puzzle about the democracy. Um, the, the kids we spoke to are kind of shocked and a little annoyed that a university is is not a democracy. <laughs> it, it's fascinating. But yeah. the, the university, at the same time, paradoxically, is sort of shocked that people are noticing what they're doing. You know, that, that it's kind of a scandal that Henry Kissinger is on, you know, presiding there. Right. Not quite presiding. Anyway. But we couldn't be a democracy. I mean, you don't have people vote on the results of a research experiment. No, I'm no. not expecting it to be a democracy. And the university knows perfectly well it's not. At the same time, it seems to think that it lives on another planet and nobody's watching. That's true. Yes. Well, I don't think that's true. Why would they be having so many people who are public relations people if they didn't think there was an audience? Well, they have a bit of a tenure. <laughs> that for, may be true. For that social meaning. I mean, that this may, is yeah, something well, yeah, I mean, that, that, they, we, well, that came I up in the fossil fuel debates, yes, well, right? I, I would say, as I said from the outset, that there is a problem with technologists who do not know enough history and social context, and that makes for ten ears. Well, yeah, we we know don't, we don't expect great sensitivity from Donald Trump on the Salman question, <laughs> ordering the death of uh, Khashoggi, but we do expect something on the part of President Reif in that warm handshake with the man with the with, with the kafia on. I mean. That sends a message, too. There's another point, though, I just want to raise with you all. Um, where is the coverage of this story? The New York Times doesn't mention it. Which uh, story? Of the whole dedication of this thing and the cast of characters, 
uh, in the celebration last week hasn't made the Times yet or the protest, and it's barely made the Boston Globe, hometown maybe newspaper. Maybe right that nobody's watching us. Maybe you were right. Well, that's an interesting point. I, I've never felt sort of a... Uh, well, it's a very sharp feeling of, of a certain vacuum that we're getting used to in journalism, bird-dogging stories like this, putting it on page one, telling people. Do we agree or not? Where, where is the... I think maybe it has to do with the fleeting... Uh, time pressure. You know, it's one story for 24 hours, and then it's another story, and then it's another, and then it leaves it up to people like you to get the longer story. Or the or the active consciences on the MIT campus, maybe. I want to ask you, uh, and this is especially for you, Susan, a question about Henry Kissinger. We're, we're, we're talking a lot about Henry Kissinger, and he will become sort of the icon of this college, if you're not careful. No. Well, no. Okay, for the moment. I'll tell you how I think about this. No, but I want to ask. No, I want to tell you what I think about okay. this. I think about it the way I think about my wedding. It was one afternoon, it was a dress, <laughs> it was a meal. I could. The marriage is what counts, and the marriage is different. Henry Kissinger wasn't there, though, was he? He didn't. No, and Henry Kissinger won't be in the college. Here's time. my question if But you Stephen tried... Schwartzman, he will be. And that, and he's friends. No, I have, I have a question for you. Henry it's Kissinger. not entirely, you know, frivolous. If you were trying to offset the image of Henry Kissinger looming over this creation of a new college, Susan, um, who might vouch for the deep seriousness of the change you're trying to bring about? Who, who would put a seal of authenticity, not criminality, on the on the birth of this new college? I mean, the who? faculty who are working now, over a hundred people on committees trying to think about what this college could be. We have five different committees working. What will its organization be? What shall be the curriculum? How shall people be appointed? What infrastructure needs? And what? how will we incorporate social consequences and responsibilities. Over a hundred people. We are going to have that, meetings. I'm, listen, I'm looking for a, you maybe want. simplistically, but an icon of integrity to kind of pose against the... We're uh, iconoclasts, right? Icons, oh my God. God yeah, I don't, what I'm I thinking, think... the Dalai Lama, for example. Oh, no. No. <laughs> Why not bring Noam Chomsky out of retirement? To... That would be lovely. That would be lovely. Uh, who else? I would... You can be an iconoclast. You don't have to have an icon. Yeah. I want to. We do I, not worship idols. To, uh, you know. No, but just, I don't need a hero. I don't need heroes. I have my. But so the man on the street can say, "Well, yeah, they must mean it." I would always point Dostoevsky to sort of moral, morally endangered causes like this. But who else? A saint, a woman. <laughs> what was the name of the woman? Um, Let's think of a woman. Yeah, we'll think of a Fast, woman. before the break. Who, who's our woman to certify I don't, the, I don't the want to certify. I sat on the bus. Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks. Now Rosa you're talking. Parks. It's a little late, but it's a good idea. No, I couldn't um, come up with her name. Stand by. <laughs> Coming up, what's new and what's not in this MIT, what's not new in this MIT turmoil with the biologist Jonathan King, who's been outspoken on and off campus since the 60s. This is Open Source.
Nobody knows the moral complexities of life at MIT better than our guest Jonathan King. Nobody since Noam Chomsky left the campus. Chomsky, of course, was preeminent in the science of language. 60 years on the faculty at MIT, a piercing peacenik against the Vietnam War. He drew an acid picture of MIT's high rank in the club of academic intellectuals who designed the weapons and the strategies of that war and other wars. He was surrounded on the MIT faculty, he used to say, by the pragmatic planners of American empire. Jonathan King is a senior biologist at MIT, a dissenter in that Chomsky tradition, a pillar of Massachusetts peace action for many years. You spoke, Jonathan King, 10 days ago at MIT about the power of protest after 50 years in it. Speak to this odd identity of your institute, Jonathan. The old slogan used to be, science in service to the nation. Well, it is. this is the 50th anniversary of a famous event called March 4th, Scientists Strike for Peace, mm. where, where scientists and engineers at MIT and about 30 other campuses across the nation stopped doing work as a protest against the Vietnam War. And uh, it's odd because MIT was one of the leading Pentagon contractors at the time. In fact, mm. that was one of the concerns of the students. They wanted the the military research, which was secret, so you couldn't share ideas, you couldn't have the, the life of the university, and they eventually succeeded. But, you know, MIT, first place, let's, MIT is not Harvard, or wasn't at that time. We were not training in aristocracy, right? We were not True. training in elite. Our students... It's hard to find a preppy at right, MIT. Our, our students didn't come from Andover and Exeter. They, were, they made, you know, rockets in, in the basement, um, and uh, and and they they you know they they led uh, events though, though Chomsky himself was very uh, was very influential, um, but over the over the fifty years that has changed the student body has changed as the cost of education has gotten higher more and more of our students come from very well to do families and are more focused on career development rather than you know contributing uh, to knowledge etc. Et, et mm. However. This year, the relationship between the administration and the uh, absolute monarchy of Saudi Arabia was so outrageous, right? You know, it was if, as, it's as if Mussolini had come over in 1938 and was warmly welcomed by the civil engineering department who offered to help with the trains. And the student, the first thing that happened was the students wrote an editorial in the student uh, paper. Uh, and then graduate students, and you interviewed some of them, and, and then the faculty, uh, like Sally and, and many others, got involved. Now, here we have— I didn't even mention the war in Yemen. That's another— Oh, well, I'm going to come to that. Okay. So, Saudi Arabia, an absolute monarchy. You know, this country, 200 years ago, right, you know, people fought to throw off King George, and he was supporting an absolute monarchy. Uh, brutal dictatorship involved in the death of tens of thousands in, in Yemen, and the president— is shaking hands and taking PR pictures, absolutely legitimating that that uh, regime. That's why they were here, right? There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're buying a little bit of, of research, but it's it's small change compared to the overall federal budget. And by the way, MIT, you know, it's not a private institution. More than half the operating budget comes from people's income taxes, right? In terms of federal grants, NIH, NSF. Uh, EPA, etc. So we're public servants and, and not private agents. And it's just, um, it should be terminated, right? That does not interfere 
with freedom of research. If somebody in civil engineering wants to work on on water supply or, or agriculture and arid areas, there are plenty of ways to do that. MIT is sitting on $16 billion of endowment. There's no doubt they could use a little bit of that interest to fund a couple of graduate students and a couple of postdoctoral fellows. Jonathan King, I want your critique of the College of Computing and the whole venture into artificial intelligence. Well, I, you know, I don't share my, my chairman's view. I, I find it hard to believe that they really are going to be dedicated to ethics and morals when they start off with Henry Kiss, Kissinger and Schwartzman and Tom Friedman. I mean, Thank you. it's absolutely, uh, you know, it's a no-brainer no that they're going in a different direction. And, of course, it's not what people say, right? It's, it's what they do. And you've described this kind of um, uh, instrumentality that displaces, uh, you know, values. And, you know, they're, they're going to be serving these big high-tech companies, and it's very sad. It's always been sad. I remember Jerome Wiesner, president of MIT. He had been President Kennedy's science advisor. It broke his heart, I really think, to see the best kids coming out of MIT in the 70s going into weapons manufacturing, design, the, the whole Pentagon drill. Raytheon. They're still training people to go to Raytheon and create bombs to then sell to the Saudis. Right. Look, yeah. The president, just the day before yesterday, introduced a, a, a budget in which he proposed basically to spend $750 billion, and that's an under, underestimate, more than half of all the income taxes we send to the federal government, more than half of the total discretionary budget. How is he going to finance that? By cutting funds for housing, health care, biomedical research, the State Department, uh, you know, food stamps. You, you're talking, you are talking about a national policy. MIT is not making that policy but we are carrying it out, and we should not be carrying it out. But how fair is that spirit of dissent, too? Obviously very secure and protected, uh, but on the campus in real life now, Jonathan. Well, one of the problems, you know, you talked about democracy in the university, um, but we are, MIT is one of the few research universities in the United States that doesn't have a faculty senate. The president chairs the faculty meetings. Only occasionally do we get our own chair, chairing the faculty meeting. Our own Susan. So you have a very difficult situation when the person who you're trying to call to the account, right, the president, is the one who's appointing the committees that are going to evaluate his behavior. It is really a deep, deep conflict of, of interest, and he should recuse himself. What, what would you want your chairman, and here she is, Susan Sildi, to be telling those people the powers? I tell them all the time. And they tell me I'm a one-tune Johnny. <laughs> That's a phrase they use. What I tell one-tune them... is better than a one-note Johnny. That's <laughs> what I, I tell them that they need to pay more attention to what we know in the social sciences and the humanities, and they have to reallocate resources so that we can participate more fully on an equal basis with our colleagues who are doing things for whether it's weapons or it's AI or something else. 
And but, I say this over and over again. But the, that's, part of the Sally. issue is that interdisciplinarity is extremely difficult. It is not like I can't walk in to a, a group of engineers or computer scientists and begin to talk with the language that I normally use to talk to my colleagues or I talk to Susan or I talk to social scientists because our languages are very different. Our forms of reasoning are very different. And I really believe that that there's the, the dominance of a kind of cost-benefit analysis where cost-benefit is evaluated internal to a structure that's, okay, given this structure and given these constraints, what are the costs? What are the benefits? Where some of us want to step back and say, why are those the constraints? But Susan, why are we Susan doing this? Susan wants to step back, but I want you to kick the tires of her notion that MIT must now think up a new education. I'm reminded of a very distinguished biologist who lives in Cambridge, Matthew Meselson, who knew, you know, when he was nine that he wanted to be a scientist, went to the University of Chicago, started early, and the first thing they said was, you're not going to get to science until your junior year. You're going to learn the great ideas of Western man. Uh, uh, Whoa, uh, don't go there. Well, no, that's tricky, and everything is a little, um, nothing's perfect. But he was grounded in, in the Western tradition of philosophy and culture before he took a course in science. Can you imagine that trans- sort of transformation no. at yeah, MIT? But, 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 but wait a minute, wait a minute. The faculty did not call upon MIT to get in bed with Mohammed bin Salman. That came from above, right? Mm. It came from an undemocratic, anti-democratic, non-academic thing. It re- reflected in no way the, the history and the culture of, of the faculty. So I absolutely think we should resist the notion that, well, MIT, no, it's not MIT. The faculty still wants to teach, still wants to do research, still wants to work, make the world a better world. But we have a small group at the top that's chasing those dollars. And don't forget, those are very special dollars. Money that comes to a faculty member from the NIH and gives uh, overhead to the institute, the president can't use that however he wants. But the money that comes from Mohammed bin Salman, right, doesn't come under the spotlight, and they can spend it however they want. It's fascinating. Sally, what does the philosopher make of that? Well, I agree. I agree that we live in a plutocracy at MIT and everywhere else in this country. And I think that that... So MIT's faculty, I think that many of them are very committed and have good values and are trying to make the world a better place. But I also agree with the students that technology is not going to make the world a better place. Technology by itself, Mm -hmm. without the broader context, without the philosophical inquiry, without the normative reasoning, without all of these things, it's going to go nowhere. But there is no incentive for people to do that because our current – the way that the current – system works is that you make a buck. You And look look at our students. So this is part of the issue with our students is they want to be entrepreneurs. I've been in programs at MIT where they were interested in providing assistance for food and water security. And I suggested a, a group in Kenya that I work with and and nobody was interested in it. And then the person came up to me afterwards and said, you're going to need to find some entrepreneurs. This is a place where people don't have toilets or running water. They don't have electricity. They don't have anything where there's, where there's AIDS orphans and terrible food insecurity. And they're talking about me finding entrepreneurs who are going to go in there and help. And I said, you know, at universities... 
The good that is produced is supposed to be knowledge, not money. But that kind of gets blown away in many of these contexts. Let me change the subject a little bit. Back to the students, though. They spoke intuitively about changing the political economy, changing the power structure in this society. Yes. Henry Kissinger can get very scary on the danger of AI, but he never mentions the thought of changing power, power who's, who's running the game. For example... Nor the Schwartzman. Of course. So that, I would like to say something about that. Part of the problem is the way in which often engineers and scientists have two theories of causality by which they understand the world. It's either physical matter or it's human intention. And what Mm. they miss is social organization. And when they talk about ethics and they talk about individual decision-making, they're not going to make any improvement on this. And what Mm. those students are acknowledging is that they have finally understood that it is not you know, an individual who intends to do something, but how people organize with each other to build or firms or whether it is build social movements or universities and to understand the layering and structuring of resources and people and ideologies. And until you put them in that context, they're not going to make any headway. And that's what we want to do. We want to show that these things are connected. Jonathan, explain how you'd get there to uh, realizing that so many of the fundamental issues are structural in the whole society and uh, picking on individuals or small changes don't help. Well, I'm not, you know, you got to start somewhere, you know. If it was up to me, I'd say the first thing should happen, we should have a motion of the faculty to, you know, censure the administration and, you know, require that uh, they divest from this relationship with this absolute, you know, absolute monarchy. Could you get that on the floor? Well, so uh, historically, uh, that's been quite quite a, a struggle. Some of the biggest victories... In, in the, the the whole the origin, so I'm the chair of the editorial board of the faculty newsletter. We are the only committee of the entire faculty that's elected only by the faculty and not jointly by the administration. Our origin was 25 years ago, 30 years ago, when then Provost John Deutsch of CIA fame yep. terminated one of the presidential pardon, uh, right? The Department of Applied Biological Sciences, and we thought, oh, that's against the rules and regulations of the faculty. He can't do do that. And uh, we had quite a fight to try to finally bring uh, a, a resolution to censure. We, the administration wouldn't give us the addresses of the other faculty members, and the faculty newsletter was the wow. Xerox way of getting, getting people to, to the meeting. Uh, that got tabled, but that, that um, uh, decision got reversed. John Deutsch didn't become the president of MIT, which is what he was aiming for, and he also didn't become the president of the Johns Hopkins when they heard that the faculty was going to vote no confidence in MIT. So those little those those do make a difference. Now the fact of the matter is, Sally is right. You know, you look at the federal budget, right? If the federal budget is dominated by you know uh, taxpayers' dollars going to Raytheon and Lockheed Martin to arm the Saudis. Right to continue their air attacks in Yemen. No, we can't make any 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 progress. And so, you know, you know, we do need to elect, uh, you know, a different group in the House of Representatives in the in the in, in the Congress. 
And um, in the years, to, you know, let's hope that what happened in 2018 with a real change uh, in, in the House. We need a real outspoken public conversation about all of these issues. Um, the Harvard faculty did vote no confidence in Larry Summers, and it had everything to do with his departure. I mean, um, who am I to say? But I mean, folks like you have powerful voices, strong minds, deep professional standing, and, and we all need to hear from you. But I also believe that, that it's social movements that do this. I mean, yes, individuals um, can make a difference, and we can, we, but we need to organize. And this is part of what the students are doing and whose university is it, the ones who, who organized um, the event at the public library you mentioned. They're a cross-university organization who are trying to hold elite schools in this area accountable. And I think that, you know, movements can matter. Um, movements can make a difference. And when we join forces, especially join forces, you know, drawing our knowledge from these different schools, I think it can make a difference. Susan Silby, you speak of all kinds of committees being set up to build this school. Inside, outside, do you, are you asking for nominations? Are, you, are people begging for you to Beyond get on the, the committees? Committee? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I had more volunteers than we could staff. And I've had to say no. And we... We followed the same general logic by which we do most committees at MIT, representations from the five schools, representations mm. from undergraduates and graduates, members of the staff. Many more people volunteered and deans nominated people, and those are who are on these committees. And we're going to have meetings, and I might advertise now. There's going to be meeting uh, in two weeks. We're going to send out a letter to meet the members of the committees and talk to them, and they're going to have... It's, I believe in participatory democracy. I yes, have been but trying. I, I, I but they don't even make recommendations. They're That's just right. reports, so they have no power. Zero power. I believe in participation by people who can't be there, including <laughs> the wonderful Rosa Parks that you we, we all struggled to come up with, but I think that's a clue. Stick with it. Thank you, Susan Silby, Sally Haslinger, and Jonathan King, and Yarden Katz. Thanks also to Elena Sobrino, Gabriel Ballard, and Alonso Espinosa Dominguez, our students at MIT. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Rebecca Panovka, the artist Susan Coyne, George Hicks, who engineered the program with help from Max Liebman, Mary McGrath is our artificial intelligence. I'm the real thing, Christopher Lydon. Join us next time on Open Source.